Welcome, everybody, to Sippin' and Shippin'. I'm your host, Brian Weinstein. We'll be kicking it here every other Thursday, quenching your thirst for an insider's take to enhance your customer's experience. Grab your drink of choice, kick back, it's Sippin' and Shippin' time. All right, welcome, everybody, to another episode of Sippin' and Shippin'. I am your host, Brian Weinstein, and I'm here guarded and protected, as I always am, by my trusty companion case caitlin postal brian struggling with my name it's never a good start no. how you doing today <laughs> i'm doing all right you know what i almost said c post because everybody knows you as c post from your from it. your yeah exactly exactly so and we have today two special guests uh andrew potkowitz who was originally introduced to me as the godfather of e-commerce oh by a goodness. mutual friend <laughs> Wow. High, high praise and, and definitely oversold, but I appreciate the uh, kind words. No, no, no. We, we appreciate you coming on. And, and, and we also have Todd Welling, uh, also from Overdose. How are you doing Good today, Todd? Very well. Appreciate you having us on the pod. No, uh, you know, appreciate you guys coming on and spending the time. And, and this is a subject, you know, as, as I've sat here and, and tried to do some research, uh, I'm like that pod, I'm like that emoji the, with the, with the, with the brain exploding. Right. So I'm trying to wrap my brain around traditional commerce, headless commerce, composable commerce. And I, I, I think I've, I've, I may have found the experts, uh, to kind of get us into this, but, you know, Andrew, why don't you start and tell us a little bit about your background and, uh, you know, how you got the moniker Godfather of e-commerce. Wow. Um, so my background, I, you know, I come from a, a, a background of, um, brick and mortar retail and customer service. Um, so spent many years uh, with the home Depot, um, on brick and mortar, uh, store management and transitioned from there over to a company, um, that was called COVID and now it's Ventronic, uh, which is a surgical device company I'm working with and running call centers for them. I've really been in the e-com space going on six years now, um, working out of a little boutique agency based out of New York, um, have since joined Overdose and uh, am director of Global Partnerships. So really my purview with Overdose is to ensure that we as an organization are aligned with, um, with the right and best uh, techs and otherwise in the space and that our clients are getting the most out of not just the tech itself, but the teams that support them. Um, and I suppose just by being in the ecosystem and being ever present um, across events, um, I've just gotten to know some folks in the space. Right, right. And clearly, Ryan Powell is one of them. Brian Powell is one of them. <laughs> and, and Todd, how about you? What, what, what's your background? Yeah, Brian, um, my background is originally from investment banking of all places. So okay. I used to uh, work uh, over closer to you guys in Brooklyn um, and in London and over in Singapore, uh, focused on writing kind of high-end trading systems. Life took me through um, marriage and babies towards New Zealand, where I am now. Okay. Um, and... Uh, around about five years ago, five and a half years ago, we launched Overdose with my co-founder, Ryan, who still heads up all of our design and experience practice. We've had some incredibly fortunate and very humbling growth. So we've gone out from the two founders to a global team now of around about 400 staff across uh, 10 to 11 offices around the world and on a little bit of a tear through that space. That's great. And, and so from... Tell us a little bit about Overdose. Sure, yeah. So um, from for all intents and purposes, from an outside looking in, we look like a e-commerce agency. Uh, but we 
we presented ourselves to the market with a very different belief structure. Um, we believed that there was an opportunity to build an organization that was tightly coupled to the outcomes of our retailers. Now, that doesn't mean that we're locked into uh, percentages or margin plays or anything like that. It was actually more of a cultural bias, Brian. It looked at being, uh, I always talk about the business in three dimensions of where we want to have a breadth of services, a depth of services, and then a geographical reach. So we ideated out this concept of instead of building a big factory that was just churning out websites, that we could actually build something a lot cuter. So we have this concept of a federated business model, which essentially means that we're building um, when we talk about our, you know, 11 offices, I think there are, there are now, those 11 offices work semi-autonomously. And whilst they share 80, 90% of our culture, they actually have that unique special source of local governance and local leadership. What we believed was that what the market required was a stronger sense of retailing understanding. So we weren't just selling the cars, we were being the pit crew at the same time, um, really driving business outcomes through there. Having that breadth of service, so it goes across strategy, experience, data, technology, search, and marketing, so we can understand the full funnel, everything from customer acquisition, conversion, retention, taking them all the way through that, that life cycle, and then being able to touch every part of that digital funnel, which drives each one of those disciplines, but then also being able to do that with an agnostic lens. And when I say agnostic, it doesn't just mean the back-end technologies that, that, that we're using. The agnostic, agnosticism, is that a word? Um, uh, is it actually, wasn't, it is now. It is it, now. Exactly. It is now. Consensus. <laughs> that's actually uh, kind of geographically biased as well. So if you think about you know, how a consumer converts and engages with a brand in your traditional US market, when you bring that over to Europe, when you start talking in different languages, when you start going into Asia, Australasia, there is a fundamental different dynamic of how a user conversion and sort of a, a brand adoption happens in each one of, of those markets. So what I didn't want to do was get into this environment where there were a couple of guys at the top that were just saying, this is the future of commerce. It's actually so much more nuanced than that, right? And having that depth of capability across those international markets was pivotal. And then when it comes to the technology, you know, being agnostic doesn't just mean that, hey, look, we know how to code on, you know, five or six different platforms. It was actually about the right sizing. So it was actually working with retailers and helping them understand what are the products you should be buying for your business based on the logistics, the dynamics, the internal capabilities, the roadmap of where you want to get to. And it's literally, do you need the Bugatti or is actually the Toyota exactly what you need? Um, so fitting or what we refer to as right sizing, right sizing the technology solutions, the channels, the marketplaces, selecting that whole suite of how you take a product to market digitally. Um, that's kind of become a real core part of the whole service offering. Right. And I guess we do that in our own very unique way. Um, we have that very interesting blend of having a real startup hoodies, t-shirts and ping pongs kind of culture, right? But then yep. balanced with some real depth of enterprise capability and having, you know, 400 humans under my watch, you know, that keeps me awake at night, but also sets a pretty clear precedent for the standard and caliber of work we're expected to deliver. So we always talk about let's look and feel boutique, but actually deliver enterprise in the background. Interesting. 
Interesting. So, so in, 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 in your role, in your organization, you need to be out in front of very rapidly changing technologies. And, 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 you know, I see it now more so than ever things are changing so rapidly. And, you know, for us and for, I think for the layman, they may not understand what, what, what you guys are already starting to, to get involved with is a, a transition from a more traditional uh, e-commerce platform, right. Into this more headless scenario or composable. So maybe we can take a step and talk about what traditional is versus where, where sort of the market is headed. Well, it, it's interesting you say that and sort of, you know, from, from what Todd was talking about with this sort of global footprint and, and having boots on the ground, um, in different markets, exposed to different technologies, different cultures, different ways of shopping. What we've actually seen here is, um, this sort of headless concept is something that's been sort of bandied about for the past two and a half, three, almost four years, just a conversation around it. And it, it, the conversations evolves over time. Um, but we actually started seeing it. it, it it's interesting to see how, how trends touch down in different regions. And we're actually able to sort of track that across our, our global footprint. So we sort of saw this trend after years of discussion really touch down in, uh, in EMEA in, in, in mainly central Europe for us maybe 10, 11 months ago, where it started becoming a real thing. Um, and then, you know, fast forward three or four months, and then it sort of hit APAC, um, you know, maybe five, six months ago and in, in North America, really in earnest three, four months ago. But maybe before we get into what headless is, Todd, if you want to talk a little more about traditional commerce. Yeah, for sure. So let's have a bit of a, um, a dial back in history of time when we used to buy software on CD-ROMs and install them on our, our desktops and, uh, you know, run virtual local machines and stuff, you know. So we we went from that space and then we started heading into the open source space. Um, probably Magento defined the market in that. There were several others that were in that space. It made commerce accessible, okay? So it meant that everyone could start getting into uh, running enterprise-style environments without necessarily having such a high price tag on those. What happened through that em environment was there was this natural lean brine to what comes out of the box. And if you look at your traditional RFP that a merchant will send out to market, whether they realize it or not, even still today in this world of, you know, moving in composable directions, the majority of RFPs are actually looking for a monolithic stack. It's a, does your solution do X, right? And it's a tick boxing exercise. And there is this, you know, ethereal hunt for the silver bullet of what solves all of my problems. That is the cheapest, the fastest, way to, to market through there. And open source really enabled that um, that growth of the monolithic e-commerce stack. You started with this environment where Magento delivered you the core of an environment. It provided you the three main things you needed to be able to sell online, which was a database, i.e. so you've got a admin console that's, that's coming in there. Um, it's storing all of your data models. It's an extensible data model. So you can start to add your own attributes. You can record different things about customers. And it's not just a closed fixed model. It's about having a environment which, which you can ex extend upon. You then have an API layer. So somehow to talk to that application. And then you have a front end, which is essentially what appears on the website. So if you took those three core pieces, the vernacular started to change from being called the front end to being called the presentation layer, okay? And then you had your API, your comms layer, your database, your knowledge layer, okay? So you've essentially got presentation, communications, and knowledge. What was then happening was that people were building extensions 
and plugging more things into each one of those, those those environments. So be that your payments, be that your marketing platforms, um, search and merchandising, um, anything which was um, extending your ability uh, to advance your customer's experience. As we got um, further and further down that path, one of the problems with open source is that it's open, right? And the fact that anyone can get their hands in there. So whilst you see some of the most incredible commerce websites in the world, you know, five, six, seven years ago were coming out on this Magento platform, there was also some of the worst as well, right? right. There was people trying to spin spin up versions of Magento on, you know, Bluehost and Hostgator and, you know, $5 a month kind of hosting environments. And you got into issues of speed. You then have people that were throwing 20, 30, 50. I've even seen one that had 100 extensions on there, right? And so you start getting into these nascent issues of where you started creating this huge technical debt and you started getting very associated to one particular developer that had built that platform out. And you lost that portability. You, you lost the ability to really keep evolving that platform forward because you'd, you'd, you'd kind of put so many strands of spaghetti in the pot that looked nice and straight when they went in when they'd been cooking. We had this, you know, big curly bowl of, of, of spaghetti off the back of that. And, and that's, sorry to cut you off, Todd, but you know, it's ironic because one of the reasons why the, the ecosystem moved away from custom web applications was because of just that being handcuffed to, you know, a one-off person who, you know, God forbid they won the lottery and disappear. You're, you're really screwed because only they really know your tech stack. So this rollout of commoditized tech that I was talking about was to sort of help solve that. But then right. people wanted more and more and plug more and more in all of a sudden it became again, this bespoke really custom built application. Right. Sounds like a giant outlet extension where you've got all these extension cords plugged in and it's only at some point. Of, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and look, that's where we were sort of five, seven years ago. Right. So big monolithic stack, you tended to run your own hosting. Um, you started running into being able to keep up your speed of innovation. Um, and alongside that, it took a fairly long time to get those products to market because you were building them from a ground up environment and you had these problems with speed in a front end space, right? So, you know, websites taking 10, 15 seconds to load through there. So what evolved, um, off the back of open source, the next kind of evolution we had was SaaS. So this was your Shopify's and your big commerces and your Presto shops of, of, of the world. And really where they came and hit the market was from a bottom-up perspective. And that was much more about increasing the accessibility and commoditization of commerce, right? So it was how does, um, you know, at a very early starting point, how does mom and pop take a lemonade stand style retailer into an e-commerce world, right? So if you looked at kind of like the, a column of water in terms of, you know, the, the ocean SAS very much starts from the lowest common denominator and works its way up. Open source kind of covers the whole column of, of the market. Anyone can do anything, but just cause you could, doesn't necessarily mean that you should. And with the evolution of those, those SAS products, it took off uh, quite a few variables from the table. The first one was it took off speed to market much quicker to get a Shopify website up and running. Okay. Um, it took off uh, scalability, right? So everything was scalable. You were living in these cloud environments. You didn't have to go and run your own hosting environments. If you wanted to do, you know, these big burst sales where Magento websites, you know, back in the day used to fall over if you threw, you know, 10,000 concurrents at those sites in a Shopify environment, it just auto scaled through there. 
Right. And then thirdly, I, and I think probably one of the biggest things that took off the table, but is discussed the least, is actually security. Because, you know, as e-commerce rose, all these Magento sites were starting to get hacked. You know, they had these, you know, little tiny MCE injection points that would appear through, you know, these rogue extensions and things like that. And by living in a cloud environment where you can't touch many things inside the box, it drove a very high level of, of security. And if you are a small single source retailer, you know, someone comes in and steals all, all, you, all your, your credit card data, that can literally kill your, your entire business. Todd, just to ask the question, are, so this is the evolution of traditional. This right? is the evolution of, of traditional, but it's important to understand about why you want to go composable. Okay? Right. Yep. So you've got on one end of, of the spectrum with a monolithic open source environment, you have complete flexibility, Brian. You can mm -hmm. do whatever you want with that piece, piece of kit, but what comes with that is problems, right? And, and it comes with that is that you need a professional team that's running the show for that, and it needs to be constantly touched and uh, massaged to deliver you those particular results. Other end of the spectrum, SaaS. SaaS is, is then giving you speed to market, fast things, um, really easy plugins to make, make your business uh, um, accelerate. However, you lose some of the complete control of flexibility. Mm -hmm. In a SaaS environment, you have to make some of those tough decisions as a merchant to fit your business into the tech. In an open right. source environment, you build your tech around the business, right? Um, so what slowly happened is that those two Piece, pieces of the world slowly started gravitating towards each other. SaaS started getting better. They started having more features. They had what we call multiplicity. You can have multi-location, multiple currencies, multiple languages, right? You've got the evolution of things like Shopify Plus, the evolution of things like big commerce with open APIs. On the open source side, they then started developing what they call PaaS, platform as a service. And that's where people like Adobe started building relationships with AWS and saying, hey, look, instead of you trying to work out how to host your own platform, and again, a mom and pop retailer doesn't know how to optimize an SQL database or you know, define better case structures. They started saying, right, we're gonna bring this into a completely productized environment. Now, what happened with those two forces coming together is that the next evolution was into this space that we call headless. Now, headless is part of composable, um, but, isn't, but is not fully what composable means. Now, what headless means is that you wanted to separate out the presentation layer. Now, think about that. If you've got your own Shopify website, you go into one admin console. And that admin console is where you put your API keys in there, you've got your database, your customers, your products, and then you click through a few pages and you've got your theme files, right? It is still in many ways kind of monolithic. It's not truly monolithic because monolithic tends to define the physical server architecture. But if you looked at it from purely a software environment, it is kind of monolithic because you're doing everything inside one screen. Hey, Todd, I, I think it's it's important to note that when we think about the traditional tech stack and you think about these all-in-one platforms, um, one of the biggest challenges that all of them had was that they lacked a robust front end. They lacked a robust content management system, a CMS. So you could get by with either custom development of that theme and that, uh, and that front end, or you could drop in sort of a plugin that was sort of a, a drag and drop page builder. But again, they were really limiting. You really couldn't, you couldn't bring all your brand content into that e-commerce experience. Sorry, Ted, go ahead. 
And you're exactly right, Andrew. And what was happening at the same time there, Brian, was that you had these more advanced, mature, mature retailers that not your Amazons of the world that were pure, pure commerce, but brands that were content driven environments that were running on a content first environment. So they were running on, um, platforms like a Adobe Experience Manager, a Sitecore, an Epi server, right? Where they were a content first space. And then all of a sudden they realized, oh damn, I can go direct to, to, to consumer. So those platforms started trying to build commerce capabilities. Everyone was essentially gravitating towards this same space, Brian, but no one could get to it, which was trying to have um, completely customizable commerce and content in one singular environment. Okay. Mm -hmm. So all of these forces running towards this same space, um, what headless was, was separating out that presentation layer and a demand from particular merchants saying, we want a few things here. Firstly, we want complete extensibility, customizability of our consumer engagement layer, right? We want to be able to really dramatically control that client experience. Secondly, we want to be able to use our commerce and our content in some non-traditional environments. We don't always view that the future of the world is just websites, right? right. Um, I want to be able to push this into in-store kiosks, Alexa skills, um, iWatch apps, right? Mm -hmm. um, can I not have a big screen that sits outside my retail store um, in the window so when my store is closed at 5 p.m., people can still order a pair of jeans or a T-shirt or add them to their wish list or send to a friend, right? So it was trying to kind of go into that IoT, Internet of Things, democratization of where conversion happens. And when you start thinking about social and conversational commerce, it gets a lot more interesting, right? Of um, how do I actually run? And, and, and to be honest, the easiest way to think about headless is actually Facebook stores, right? If you think about that, where I am selling my scented candle on a Facebook store, but that transaction flows back into my Shopify, my Magento, my Salesforce, that's mm -hmm. headless commerce, right? The conversion happened elsewhere, but it was all powered by a backend engine that was an API first environment that was feeding up my listings into these different spaces. When you send a, a listing from your Magento store up into Amazon, that's kind of headless as well, right? Because we're actually doing a multi-channel kind of concept. But headless in a tech world is slightly different. So headless in a tech world was taking complete control of your front-end environment, and it usually evolved around the output of a PWA. So a PWA, progressive web application, a whole set of um, standards and structures around how you should be building modern front-end experiences you'll often hear words thrown around like um, a single page application, right? It's starting to use much more modern tech in terms of how do you render a really fast website? And it started to, to leverage quite a few things. So firstly, first part of that was doing what we call server-side rendering. So it was actually trying to do as much of the intelligent thinking on the server side and not on the browser side. Right. So you then layer that with uh, some speed tools. So things like your caches and your CDNs. Then on the front end, you would start instead of, uh, you know, having traditional uh, PHP, you know, CSS, JavaScript, um, inline SQL kind of websites, you would move into the environment of where all of your websites are written in, in modern JavaScript languages. So typically those tend to be React or in uh, Vue. 
two kind of languages, both kind of output the, the same thing. That sort of then semi does the old school concept of really kind of compiling a website, right? Which is how you start moving into the A of PWA, of where your website becomes more like an application running on a website. Whereas a normal website is actually hitting a server, asking for a lot of information, and then trying to render that as quickly as possible. In a PWA, it's almost kind of compiled and running inside your browser and using all of those, those, those tech like your browser storage environments as well. Now, the long shot of that is that you start to get very, very quick websites, right? And you get very quick websites and you get a much more app-like experience. And this also played into that dynamic of where everyone was becoming mobile first in their thinking about commerce, right? You know, it's now, you know, I recall back in the days where people started getting hairy when it was 20 and 30%. I'd say probably our average across our whole portfolio is probably north of 60% now in terms of traffic that comes through mobile to those websites. And obviously, you know, we're moving into a, a world of 5G. Those challenges have got faster, but there's actually been this interesting battle about how do you make your websites move faster whilst actually network speeds are increasing at the same time, right? So we're kind of getting into those, the customer expectation is these snap loading, you know, two, three second page loads. And to a point now where the expectation is almost an app-like experience. So that's what headless really was, Brian, was separating a presentation layer, giving you complete flexibility, really fast websites, and to a certain extent, not having to build native apps. So you didn't need to go and build a, an EOS or an Android app to get those styles of features and engagements on the front end. There's some downsides to all this tech though, Brian, right? Which is that headless was bloody hard, right? There's literally six pieces of tech that you had to be building in there. And there were some crazy smart dudes who were building this stuff up. But if you recall back what I said about one of the problems with open source is that it created exactly the same problem again, where there was not an immense amount of controls or portability in how you were building these things, right? So you got very, very stuck with one developer. You couldn't kind of change from agency to agency in terms of, you know, I don't like these guys anymore. These guys seem to be bolting. You know, you couldn't pick up and move your product with there. And you were pretty much building all of those things from scratch. So those developers started to kind of slowly build out their own frameworks. And a few products started to appear on, on market, essentially taking the concept of headless and slowly productizing it. And that's what's happened in the last sort of six to 12 months that Andrew was talking about, was the productization of headless. Now that leads into another acronym, because we need more acronyms on a podcast, which was <laughs> FAST. Okay, so the newest one is FAS, F-A-A-S, which is front-end as a service. And essentially what front-end as a service is doing is taking all of those technicalities and difficulties of running a headless environment, so your integrations, your API, your server-side rendering, your CDN, your cloud hosting, your JavaScript front-end environments, all of those nascent integrations you need with your core kind of platforms of your search, your merch, um, your marketing, your payments, bringing that all into one product set. Now that has evolved into um, a few products, you know, going and raising some really interesting capital in that space. So, you know, as Andrew said, a lot of this dynamic was actually led through Europe. Um, Germany and the Dutch markets pioneered a lot of this. So, um, in fact, a lot comes from Poland as well. No idea why, but there's quite there's quite a lot of these guys have shops in um, Krakow and, and Warsaw. 
the three that kind of appeared from the European market as these dedicated FAS product called Frontastic, Deity, and View Storefront. You then had a few other guys that had bolted a little earlier and uh, started to mature more of a DX product. So you've got people like Bloomreach in that space. Then more recently over in the US markets was recently a product called Fabric. Um, I think they raised 150 to 180 mil, something like that on an 800 mil valuation for a two-year-old company. And essentially that's what they were doing. They're productizing this headless space. And so, it's that new form of commerce. So Todd, let me ask you a question because one of the things that you mentioned about, you know, you went from the traditional and it was more like that Magento and then it went into like the SaaS but in the SaaS environment, you're, you you sort of had the constraints that sounded to me like you had that constraints of here's what you could have. And there, there were certain limitations to that. Is there a same risk here with this, with this fast that you run into those same type of constraints as things continue to evolve? Yeah. So there's a yes and a no answer to that, Brian. So, um, the first good thing about a FAS environment is that you keep your back end. So you don't throw your Magento away, right? right. FAS environments are fundamentally dumb. They, the, the whole concept is that they don't hold really any business logic in them. They hold presentation logic, mm -hmm. right? In terms of like when you hover over this, make it flash, but they tend to not hold much business logic. They tend to containerize that and accept that logic from their backend environments. So you still need that big backend chunky piece that's holding your products, your, your cart, your catalog, your customers, right? You still need all of that. When you look at the future of where we move from a FAS into truly composable environments, the truth is, is that you are removing all of those limitations, right? However, there are nascently limitations that come with time rather than with the actual product. And the time is how quickly are those other partner products evolving into this space and how are they uh, bleeding in this API first logic into how they are making their product accessible. So there's, as with all these things, there's, there's some nuance in there as well. So if you look to something like a Shopify, right? Shopify's most powerful product is their checkout. It's this universal checkout. It's the ability to connect multiple customers with a, a single customer record. And essentially, look, that's where Shopify makes its money. It monetizes through, through the transaction. So in a Shopify environment, when you try to go headless, you can still talk to all of their APIs, Brian, but you can't actually go and take over their checkout, right? You have to run your Shopify checkout for now. You know, the Shopify 2.0 is, is coming. They're starting to evolve that product set. If you looked at a big commerce, big commerce don't make those same constraints. And generally that comes down to how they charge for their platform. They aren't charging as the payment gateway. They're charging you based on the number of transactions or the volume that you put through their, their piece of kit. When you go into a Magento environment, you do the bloody hell whatever you want through there. Now, the other limitation through there, Brian, as you say, is that you've still got choke points, essentially, right? Um, it's like, that's all well and good, but if someone hasn't built that integration into that platform, then either I've got a sponsor there, I've got to build it, so on and so forth. So we're seeing over the next two years, the evolution on both sides there. These fast platforms are really quickly accelerating what, uh, you know, out-of-the-box pieces they have as native integrations. So for example, most of them will have gone and said, look, we don't want to go and build an integration for every payments engine under the sun. We'll go and work with some of these amalgamators. 
So they go and work with an Adyen, a checkout.com, right? And they say, look, let's go and actually go with Adyen. And that gives us 10 payment methods straight off the bat, right? So that kills that bird with one stone. But then when you get into those localized markets, and it's what we're seeing in Australia here, there's some payment methods where if you don't have Afterpay, ZipPay, Hum in, in market here, you're kind of not relevant. Same in New Zealand. You have to have Layby in New Zealand, right? So as these platforms are diving into each of these micro markets, they're having the oh shit moment of we thought we'd cracked it because we thought that, you know, um, if you're not American or, or if you're not British, then you kind of don't count in the world. But if you want to enter into, you know, Singapore, Japan, let alone Northern Asia, you have to start again with a, a lot of those pieces. Right. But that's not just the fast platform that has to do that. That's also all of the rest of the ecosystem has to evolve into this, what we call MAC, M-A-C-H, which is this view of how do you build products for a new composable world, right? Now, so it takes both... It takes two to tango, essentially, Brian. Right? So mm -hmm. what, what Mach means, um, and if people look this up and you look up to this thing called the Mach Alliance, is where a lot of these tech providers have got together and said, let's start building our solutions with a set of applied standards around them. So Mach is um, microservices. Now, what that essentially means, and this is where we start getting into composable chats, Microservices means that you make your product discrete. It means your product does one thing and it does one thing exceptionally well. So if you are building a reviews platform, you just be a reviews platform. You don't try to be a reviews plus a loyalty plus a subscription plus a personalization platform, right? You can have those four products, but they need to exist as separate independent microservices. So that whole concept of taking this big monolithic beast that we had at the start, Brian, and literally exploding that into a thousand pieces, that's what Composable is. Every feature and facet of your website becomes a discrete microservice. Now, whether that microservice is built by you as a company internally, because you need a microservice for some funky shipping rules, or if it's a microservice which is linking into Clavio, MailChimp, .digital, right? They're essentially microservices as a concept. Mm -hmm. The A of Mach, API-driven. So you can talk over APIs, and there are standard protocols in there. At the same time as this is evolving, people will probably have heard of this concept of GraphQL being thrown around. GraphQL is kind of the um, modern accepted API language in the Mac in, in environment. We used to talk through REST and SOAP, and before that we were doing FTPs and sending up big files and, and, and CSVs. The concept of using an API environment to a discrete service is that we're asking for only what we need right now. Right. So I am not going and asking a service, please give me all of the details of all of all of the sofas. I want this detail about that sofa right now. And if you think about the payloads that you're moving around the Internet, you're basically sending lots more parcels, but you're sending much smaller parcels. And when you're then trying to render those on websites, you've literally got less work to do because you're not clawing through all of that data. You're getting the exact data that you want and trying to apply that logic on, on the back end. The C is cloud native. So cloud native essentially means that all that cool shit we talked about with SaaS, that it's scalable and it just grows. Um, we've got no hosting that we own. It's distributed, it's resilient. If one server falls over, it's okay. I've got another 50 in my cloud. 
That's the next part of Mark. And then the H essentially stands for headless, right? Which is that we are agreeing that because our services are discrete, I don't know, but I also don't care where my data is being used. So again, if we go back to that concept of a reviews platform, the reviews platform doesn't care if you're sending that out to a website or to Facebook or integrating it to Google reviews or, you know, Alexa skill of read me the last reviews about the Tesla three, right? It doesn't care. It's just, Hey, I've got some content and I want to expose that. So headless is more, not just about building faster websites. It's about distributing your content and commerce across as many platforms as you can. So for us to truly move in this environment, Brian, we have to remove those choke points. And the only way to remove those choke points is that everyone plays nicely in the sandpit together. Now, that brings up a bit of interesting sort of political play as well, because we've got all of these guys running independently, but you've also got some absolute behemoths in the market, right? We've got your Adobe, Salesforce's, Oracle's in the market, right? Um, Adobe as an organization is hugely accepting of where the market's going in terms of modern technologies. But, you know, they're a NASDAQ listed company that wants you to buy more Adobe products, right? right? And one of the concepts of Composable is that you're always using the latest best in breed product, right? Mm -hmm. You're literally signing a month to month license to use something like an Algolia to do your on-site search instead of signing a three year license, right? So what that means is it keeps Algolia accountable to be best in breed in market, right? So they've got to keep progressing forwards. And it means you as a retailer, as merchant, you have a lot more flexibility to hop and change your mind. Adobe, and Salesforce, I'm not calling out Adobe at all, but <laughs> um, these big behemoths, they support the direction that technology is moving, but they want to get you into their environment of using their pre-integrated products. So my last acronym for the world that's coming out today is this concept of a DX cloud, right? So you'll have seen this from everyone, and this is essentially a strategy that all of these large multi-tenanted, multi-product environments are pushing to market is where they can have all of those parts of a commerce stack. Let's pick on Adobe. They've got Adobe Commerce, right? They've got Adobe Experience Manager. That's your content environment. They're building Adobe PWA on the front end. They've got products like Engage, which allows you to do your marketing. They've got their own analytics tool, right? Um, they've got Sensei, which is doing all of their AI and stuff like that. So they're building that whole internal ecosystem and they just refer to their version of Composable with the same logo above the door is essentially DX Cloud. It's exactly the same as Composable, but it's Composable making sure you stay inside the same political party, right? So um, what you'll find is that those product suites, they're a bit of a hatchet job, right? Where there is lots of acquired products in there. You know, very few of these large behemoths in our space have actually built their entire stack from the ground up. They're a combination of acquisitions that have been relabeled. And it takes a good solid two to three years to reintegrate those products back into the ecosystem. The only one that's doing that subtly different is actually Shopify, where they tend to be building nearly all of their own products in-house. They did buy this product Handshake to do B2B. I'm not quite sure where that's at, actually, Andrew. We thought it was going to launch in 2021. It never quite happened. I think COVID changed the world and they then started building fulfillment centers, but I'm sure it's still happening out there somewhere. So I just want to go on to one last thing, Brian. So what is true composability in the future? True composability. Now, 
Many of you will be familiar with the concept of decoupling. Essentially, that is separating out one tool from the other so that you can interchange them without really having to worry about the other. So one of the benefits about going into that headless environment and building your PWA is that you are essentially decoupling your front-end website experience away from your massive big database and the knowledge engine that sits behind there, and they're talking through a universal API layer. So that means that in the future, if we've built an amazing PWA together, Brian, and we've fallen out of love with one product and we want to move from a Salesforce commerce cloud to a Adobe commerce, we don't need to change our front end, right? Now, that's been a pretty standard understanding in the world of ERPs, right? Where you'd have a middleware product, you'd buy a MuleSoft, the Dell Boomi, right? Um, you know, and that's been sassified in recent times as well. And essentially we've started to decouple the front end of our lives. So now in a modern stack, you have an ERP at the back, a middleware in the middle that is connecting your data, an e-commerce engine, then APIs that connect to your front end. So we've added an extra stack in there. True composability is when nothing talks to the other product unless it's gone through a middleware environment. Now that is achievable today, but by God, it's a lot of work. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that would be where you would not go and have a Adyen plugin to Magento and then talk to it through, through your front end. Everything would go through a middleware orchestration layer. And then what we're starting to do is we are rationalizing and normalizing a data model that is completely universal. So if you think about the concept, we talked about reviews earlier, right? If you talked about the concept of a review, whether your reviews have come from Google, a trust pilot, Reviews.io, you know, there's hundreds of, the, of these things, right? What you actually end up doing on your website is you put a little plugin in and you say, here's my reviews.io plugin, and it shows you all your reviews.io reviews, right? It's actually quite difficult to uh, bring together three different review platforms and get them to talk together. But if we actually separated the logic out from what is the native data model of how each different platform has a review, and we centralize that, and we decouple our front end away from the reviews platform, that means we can move to any other reviews platform in, in the future and say, I have this thing called a review. Here is my customer's name, my four stars, my description, my receipt, my SKU, all of those things that gets put into a structured universal data model. Then your front end can start talking to that product. And literally the front end doesn't even know where that review came from. Right. What they know is there is a review here for me to display and everything is inside this orchestration layer. The way that I found this easiest to explain to a lot of merchants is that it's like looking at an orchestra and you have all of your different departments of your orchestra. You have your wind section, your timpani, your brass, right? In a monolithic world, Brian, if you wanted to change the brass section, you tended to have to replace the whole orchestra. Right. You'd literally sack the whole orchestra because that no longer fits in my environment. And I bring in a whole new orchestra. We then got to a situation with headless where we'd say, right, I can now just change my wind section. Right. I can just get rid of that particular section. I'm going to move that in a composable view of the world. I just change the oboe player. Right. And I can pick out individual players in that space. And that's what true composable commerce is allowing us to do is complete flexibility and we're still a long way away from being there in market, Brian, a long way away. 
Um, however, it's where the future is going. And Headless now is the bridge into that space. And FAST has made that accessible for the masses now. And I expect in two to three years' time, we'll be working in ever more complex environments because the one thing that comes with flexibility and customizability is complexity. And what you get in a composable environment is instead of having one Shopify admin login screen to go and do all of your tasks through, you will end up having 12 tabs across your browser for each one of those different little composable tools that you're working with. And then we'll get back into that natural concept of design thinking that happens in market where the market flares outwards. So at the moment we're in flare mode of where guys living off ramen noodles in Silicon Valley are building <laughs> the next greatest merchandising product that we've never heard of, buddy. And it's suddenly going to hit the market and come at us like force. We'll then have the funneling of when those products start to get acquired and they start to come back together and you get a centralized platform kind of evolving through there. We're even seeing that in payments recently, right? You're starting to see, you know, just yesterday, you know, Square acquired a great Australian startup, Afterpay, okay. for $29 million, right? Um, and we had seen exactly this in, in payments. All of a sudden, there was, we went from zero buy now, pay laters to one, to suddenly in the Australian market, there was like about 30. Now it consolidated back down to two or three. That then flared out globally, and now it's being reconsolidated globally. And I think that's just a trend of, digital technologies it's not really anything to do with commerce it's just where tech goes is people innovate they get acquired it gets integrated into a dx cloud then the new guy appears from absolute nowhere and bolts in that direction as well right. so the world always consolidates it back down now i've either enlightened you or just confused the absolute bejesus out of you brian well i think it was a little bit of both and, and honestly the orchestra analogy helped me a lot Again, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a little bent, so it took a little while, but I but we got there. <laughs> so I guess uh, I'll just say, Brian, that, that, that there's another version of that orchestra analogy that can be quite useful for people to understand. Um, when you think about APIs, yep. right, and those concepts of discrete services, think about that oboe player. The sheet of music that that oboe player has in front of you is just what he has to play. The oboe player doesn't know what the actual total sum music is, mm -hmm. right? They only know their particular part. Right. And then right. if you consider the conductor is kind of like your orchestration middleware layer, right? He's, he's telling each part when to play. He's pulling in all of those discrete messages. I've got my oboe, my violin, my cello. I combine that together and I make a beautiful piece of music. Now, furthermore than that, the conductor then chooses who gets to consume that final music, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that may be that we're at a theater, but that could also be going out onto a CD. That could be going onto a podcast. That could be going into radio ad tunes and chops up again, right? And I think it's actually quite a useful analogy to understand there's one person looking at the whole sheet music, and then there's somebody else that's looking just at their individual discrete part. Mm-hmm. So, so now for brands that are now, let's say they're in a more traditional environment, mm -hmm. when is the right time for them to start to consider evolving themselves and starting to move towards this, uh, this, this composable environment? So I think we're literally now, you know, even, even the fact that we're having this conversation, 
I think we'll probably look back in a couple of years' time, Brian, that this was the crossing the chasm kind of moment, right? Okay. Um, where we've gone from innovators into the early adopters phases. And there's, you know, whilst the market's only really gone nuts about this for the past sort of six to 12 months, there have been guys that have been grinding away at this for years. You know, mm -hmm. um, that whole concept of the Mac Alliance was actually pioneered by a product called Commerce Tools, where essentially they built a... Uh, an enterprise SaaS environment that had no front end. It was purely API in environment. It was actually started by the guys who left SAP that built Hybris. And they've been grinding away for, geez, I think going on 10 years now, buddy, right? Um, and so it's been waiting and waiting and waiting, and it feels like kind of um, Vesuvius ready to explode, right? Um, I think that... When we're talking to merchants now, um, it's not a must-have at the moment, Brian, right? Okay. You don't have to go and do this. Um, if you are a merchant that is looking for that really true competitive advantage where you're in a highly competitive space, so let's just say you're a, a white goods reseller and you've, you know, you know, Todd.com has got the same fridges that Brian.com has got, right? right? And I'm looking for that small competitive advantage um, where I'm willing to go and spend some, you know, not insignificant amounts of money to make this happen. It's not cheap to go and mm -hmm. do this. Um, but that the commercial results of me finding a 5 to 10% jump on Brian.com serves me an extra 5, 10 million bucks worth of revenue. Those are the kind of retailers that are really grabbing into that space now. The other and, part of this. Yeah, I was just going to ask. For, so, from a cost perspective, just as a as a percentage difference, uh, going traditional versus composable route, is it, so it three times, yeah. four times as much? No, if you looked at going from a traditional to a headless first, so one of these fast products, yep. it's probably going to cost you, in terms of your agency build, somewhere between you know, um, twenty-five to fifty percent more, right? Because okay. we're still only building the front end once, right? Yep. Um, there, there's a few more bits to to plug in, and there's a few more moving cogs in 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 the machine, but it's not extensively, you know, two four times more expensive. I think if you wanted to go truly composable and actually break down the whole environment and become, you know, um, just obsessing over your systems architecture, you can start getting into doubles and triples through there, but you're getting some pretty quick diminishing returns of, hey, do I really care that I've completely normalized my my reviews data? Because I never plan to change my reviews platform anyway, and there's a plugin, so hell, just go with that one, right? So you just have to find those parts of where there's actually a fiscal return in the beautification and let the ecosystem drive itself so that in 18 months time, that's just normal, right? You don't need to be the guys that are breaking the normal with all of that. Um, Although I will say uh, alongside this, we've seen a really interesting trend, which is if you think back to say three, four years ago, um, where brands needed, you know, three digital properties. They needed their brand website. They needed their direct to consumer, their B2C website. And then if they were B2B, they had their B2B digital property, whatever that was. Maybe three, three-ish years ago, we started seeing merchants able to start combining their, their B2C and their B2B properties into, you know, an open, a complex open source platform like Magento and like e-commerce is trying to do as well. Um, but now with this decoupling of the front end and these flexible front end solutions, you're not able to do brand content like you were never able to do before on Absolutely. an e-commerce website. So now we've gone from three separate properties five years ago to two properties to now you can actually have one property that's your brand website 
that's your, your direct to consumer website and your, your business to business website all together in one. So in that respect, you actually are gaining some, some scale there. So scale up versus startup there, it seems gearing towards hundred percent Caitlin. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, this is either, I think there's two paths where this makes sense. You're either a brand new funded startup that has a bit of cash to burn and really needs to kind of impress on the markets a, a different view. Because um, when we think about those PWAs, Caitlin, it's not too far away from building a native EOS and Android app, right? You can actually start to wrap your PWAs. You know, there's a few restrictions in there. Um, but uh, you, you can start to deploy those out to market without having to build, you know, in Swift and, and you know, C sharp and applets and think, think things like that. Or it's those retailers that are probably already at, you know, 10 to 20 mil plus, and they're looking for that step change game. It's probably not the right thing for a, um, a two, three year old brand that's looking for the next change. There's usually other efficiencies that can either drive traffic or conversion through there. So betting where we're seeing it. Betting on headless isn't necessarily betting against Shopify. They're not, necessarily at odds. It's just more to come. We have to see how these other, how Shopify, big commerce, how they're going to evolve to yes. get to that next level 100%. Or, or be involved in the equation, I guess, even. hundred percent. And all of those platforms will be doing one of two things. They'll either be saying, Hey, we're part of a composable Mac Alliance and we're going to let other people build the fast view of it. Or they're more of that DX version which is kind of the new monolithic, right? Which is composable, but in a political party view of the world. And you're seeing that with Adobe's building theirs. Um, Shopify have announced that they've already aggressively progressed that. So natively, you'll see that, you know, come 2022, the only way you'll, you'll be building new Magento Adobe websites will be headless, but it'll be headless inside an Adobe world as opposed to headless in a full see what the world has to offer me and bring together a United Nations of products. So the whole market's moving this way, Caitlin, and you're naturally going to evolve into this space. It's just whether you are using all of the world or one political party. Yeah. So just to kind of conclude, if you're a brand that's trying to make a decision direction to go, what, what would be some of the key facets that, that you should be asking yourself as an organization uh, before deciding to make that pick a direction, if you will. Yeah. So I, I think there's a few key, key parts there, Brian. Um, the first is that you genuinely need to go and talk to a tech enable partner that will do a true business value prop of what does this value bring to my business? Not what would you just like to be building on? Right. So I think there's two parts to that. One, is there a commercial benefit? So if I could increase my page load times by two seconds, what would be the anticipated result to my brand? If I could syndicate my content with all these other channels, what does that mean to my brand? And you should be able to rationalize that through analytics to say, is there a direct monetary ROI on this work that I'm doing? And when should I see those, those results? The second part to that should be, Am I the brand that wants to be the innovator or the adopter or the fast follower through those? There's a lot of benefit in being the fast follower and not the early adopter, right? There's a lot of benefits there. Let other people break the back of that. In six, 12 months time, um, those platforms will have progressed so aggressively now and people have sponsored that, that you know, your speed to market and cost of implementation goes down dramatically through there. 
The third one should be, what do I, what do I want to be as a brand in three years time? And this is about building a framework, a structure, the foundations of where I can start to have all of my different conversion channels funneling through one environment and essentially not letting technology hinder my speed of innovation. So if you're starting to look at omni-channel exercises, now in the future, I see us having kiosks. In the future, I see people scanning barcodes and QR codes in store and signing up for a subscription instead of buying that product now, right? Um, if you truly see yourself, you know, building out, you know, apps and different levels of customer engagement and re-leveraging your data in ways that are not just a website.com, those are the kind of people that are saying, hey, maybe this is the right time. And there are versions of this, right? There's baby steps that can be brought in to say, right, let's do the first round of decoupling and then I can make those decisions in the future. But it also means that you have to have, you kind of have to think like two or three horizons ahead, Brian, of where I want to get to, but realistically only really have a three to six month plan of how I'm going to achieve each step because the technical market is evolving so fast that trying to choose what I'm going to do in Q3 of 2022 it's just dumb because none of us know what those tech capabilities and products available to us are. So it's using what I can see and digest and understand in front of me and then reassess that kind of every three to six months and say, do I want to keep up with the market? Am I holding back? And you know, when, when is my ROI coming into my business? But fundamentally, the core there is taking your technology decisions and rationalizing those against the PL forecast of does this make sense for me and not be the guy that in three years time is paying to catch up, which is where Andrew and I make a living at the moment is taking B2B brands through digital transformation. Um, yeah. I had a guy call me the other day and saying, Hey, that thing you, you said I should have bought 18 months ago. I think it cost me $20 million that I didn't buy it because I missed the whole COVID bump and right. now I'm playing catch up. Right? So just finding that right timing. And as you start to see those other inspirational brands that are moving in that direction, it's probably taken them a good year to two years to get there. You can probably do that in six months, three months by leveraging where they've pushed that market forward. So just timing's key in everything, Brian. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it seems like it, it offers a tremendous amount of flexibility to the brands to really control their destiny. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot that you have to stay out in front of. You have to make sure that you're making the right decisions on a lot of, it seems like a lot of smaller component parts, right? You're not buying that one, that one stop package, but yet little different components yeah. and you really have to stay in the loop on it. You have to have a broader view. Yeah. And yeah. you know, Getting out to trade shows, listening to podcasts like this, you know, that starts to kind of uh, set that cadence. Um, and, and, and hell, Brian, you know, look at what you can get from Shopify for $24.99 a month, right? right? Literally 10 years ago, I'd have charged you half a million bucks to get exactly that same feature set. Um, and so, you know, the the evolution is, it feels like dog years, Brian, right? You know, um, right. You know a quarter in the e-commerce world feels like a year in the normal world. Um, and COVID's only accelerated that as well. And there's new innovation coming out everywhere. Yeah. I mean, listen, tech, tech as a, as a whole, I mean, it's just every, it's amazing. It's like every year it gets faster and faster and faster and faster. And, and, you know, to stay out in front of that takes, takes a lot of work and effort, but the rewards can be very fruitful. And, and that's being driven a lot by the VC cash that's going into these new product sets, you know, and they're, 
it feels a little bit kind of um, internet bubble kind of stuff. Some of the valuations we're seeing, um, but they're, they're investing on future value. So it's all good for us because we see that investment going in that excites us because we know that the product evolution will happen even faster. Yeah. Um, and the, the market wins through, through that. This has been tremendous, Todd. I, I really, I really appreciate it. Um, uh, Todd coming on and, and, and giving all this uh, detail uh, you know, for me, this is a complete learning experience. As I, as I said before, it was sort of a, uh, trying to even do my research on this to, to be conversational was difficult. So appreciate you coming on. Uh, Andrew, thank you. As always, I know you've had me on to your, uh, to your platforms as well. And I, I really enjoyed having you on here. Um, the, the, both Todd and Andrew are from Overdose. So please feel free to check them out. Um, and thanks again for coming on. Really appreciate it. Tremendous guys. Thank you. Ooh, thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks All right, again. Caitlin, you want to take us out? Sure. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you everyone for tuning in. Check us out at sippinandshipping.com or on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you two Thursdays from today. Thank you guys. Thank you.